Well, good evening. I noticed the front rows, apart from a brave soul over here, stay empty. <laughs> You're a Baptist church. Yeah? Quick for the exit. <laughs> I, I heard about a church, a new church is built on one occasion, and uh, they put only one row of seats in the back of the church. And when the people arrived, they filled up the back row, and when it was full, the weight triggered off a mechanism. It shot up to the front, and a second row appeared at the back. When that was full, that shot up to the front. And so uh, the preacher was really, really chuffed that this was one way of getting people up to the front. But exactly 60 minutes after he started the service, a trapdoor on the pulpit opened, and he disappeared. <laughs> so uh, you can sit at the back if <laughs> you don't put a trapdoor here for me. Well, thank you for coming. Anybody not here yesterday out of interest? Anybody? Yeah, there's a few of you. Okay, special welcome to you. Because we began to look into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, the sort of introductory section to the Sermon on the Mount, which occupies Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the longest uh, passage of Jesus' teaching that we have in the New Testament. Let me try and get this light on. There we are. It's got to hit it hard enough. And uh, these opening verses are a series of statements that begin with the word, blessed are, and we call them the Beatitudes. Let me read them to you again from verse 3 down to verse 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he personalizes it. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I know you don't baptize with sprinkling in this church, but I've just baptized everybody, everything. So let me get my bottle and bring it up because I've got a bottle as a backup. <laughs> Sorry about that. I think I knocked the hymn book, which knocked the glass. Whoops, let me wipe this. This is going to be wet. Okay, let's go back to these verses. And for those of you who were not here yesterday, just to set the context, these nine statements, one is repeated, so it's really eight different statements that begin with the word blessed, is the word makarios, which means to be happy. Not in the superficial sense, 
where you're feeling good today and therefore you're makarios. No, this is something much deeper than that. It is a deep inner sense of well-being and contentment irrespective of what circumstances we're in, irrespective of what's going on with us. And these eight qualities are not about eight different kinds of people. There's a progression here, and these are to be true of each true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at the first three yesterday morning, and then last night, blessed are the poor in spirit, the first step to real happiness is recognizing, in the words of Paul, that in me, that is in my flesh, that dwells no good thing. I myself am bankrupt. I myself am capable of nothing, of lasting, eternal, spiritual value by myself. And when we recognize our poverty of spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom, of course, is about a king. And the king sets up his kingdom in the hearts of people. As Jesus says in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not to come with observation. You won't say here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is within you. And the way in which the king gets a foothold in our life is in direct proportion to our recognition of our own inherent inability and poverty of spirit. When we face our poverty of spirit, we, of course, can hide it, pretend it's not like that, or we can face this honestly and mourn our poverty. The second step, blessed are those who mourn. Not about funerals. This is about your own mourning, our own poverty of spirit. It's what we call repentance. It's being deeper than sorry for what we do. It's recognizing I do what I do because I am what I am. Thank you very much. I, thank you. Thanks. Uh, it's recognizing that what I am is my problem. And as we mourn our condition, those who mourn are comforted by the Comforter, and the Comforter is a name given to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the heart of the person facing their poverty of spirit, mourning their poverty, and he comforts us by replacing our poverty with the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Replacing our weakness with the strength of Jesus Christ. Replacing our sin with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Replacing our defeat with the victory of Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is very comforting. And then, the third step is we become meek. To be meek is to be humble. And to be submissive, to submissive to Jesus Christ as Lord. So you face, we face our poverty, we mourn that poverty. We have nowhere to go then but to live humbly before God. And we live in submission to Christ as our Lord. We talked about this last night. And those who are meek inherit the earth. That is, he directs our paths and life on earth makes sense. And life on earth has purpose and life on earth has meaning. Because we live every day in dependence upon him guiding us and leading us in this life. So that's what we talked about in the two services yesterday. I'm going to talk tonight about the next beatitude. And we'll give the whole evening to this one. And it's in verse 6. Because the next three beatitudes give the evidence that we've faced that poverty, mourning it, and living meekly in dependence upon Christ. 
And the first of those evidences is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. The consequence of new life is that we have new appetites. Appetite is not something forced on us. It's not imposed from the outside. It is natural and spontaneous from the inside. And one of the main evidences of life and health is, of course, appetite. If you don't eat your breakfast one morning and somebody in your family says to you, are you okay? And you say, yes, I'm just not hungry this morning. They might say, okay, that's fine. But if you don't eat lunch, and then you don't eat dinner, someone's going to get concerned. They're going to say, listen, something's wrong. Why? Because appetite is natural. Appetite comes to us without any effort on our part. It's a consequence of health and of life. And so this hunger and thirst for righteousness is not now that you've come into this relationship with Christ, try your best to be righteous and live righteously. No, it's a totally different source. There is within us an appetite, a hunger, and a thirst for what is righteous. And appetite is an indicator of good health. And it's a good indicator of a basic, healthy instinct. Some of you are farmers. I, was in, I grew up on a farm. And uh, I spent a couple of years when I left school working on a farm. And uh, I worked with cattle and with sheep and with pigs. And... Uh, it was always interesting to see when, a, when an animal was born, its basic instinct, immediately it was born, was to go and look for the milk. I remember once when a, a sow was, was uh, farrowing and she had nine piglets. I remember taking two of them, spinning them around, so they ended up looking in the wrong direction to see if they would go and find the mother. And they immediately went straight for the milk bar. <laughs> she was, the mother was lying there, the sow was lying on her side. Normally they were born, they'd find their way around, go straight to suckle, and then the next one. But the two eyes spun around, so they were all disoriented. They immediately corrected themselves and went back for the milk. It was an instinct. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to live in your heart and mine, the first instinct he puts in our heart is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Now, the hunger and thirst is not for happiness. That's the consequence. If we hunger and thirst for happiness, we probably are not going to find it. <laughs> that, that's a mistake. Happiness, blessedness is the byproduct of an appetite for righteousness. If we search for happiness, which many of us do, we probably won't find it. If we think to ourselves, if only I got married, then I'd be happy. If only I had kids, then I'd be happy. If only I had a different job, then I'd be happy. And we pursue happiness as an end in self. I'm doing this because I want to make me happy. You'll become disillusioned. It won't make you happy. You may have some good times, but there'll be a deep disappointment as well. Because it is the hungering and thirsting for righteousness that produces this this. Blessedness, this sense of happiness. 
Let's talk about then what righteousness is. Let me first give you the three big themes concerning righteousness in the scripture. The word occurs about uh, 540 times. I, I looked that up today. I didn't count them all, but I have a concordance on my laptop and I put a search for righteous and righteousness and uh, they occur just over 540 times. Therefore, it's a key theme throughout the scripture. And the main themes of righteousness are, are threefold. I'll tell you what they are, then we'll, we'll talk about them. First of all, righteousness is the character of God. That's the first thing Scripture uses righteousness about. So Jeremiah says, here's just a few verses. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. He says, you are always righteous, O Lord. Psalm 50, verse 6 says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. Psalm 71, verse 19, your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God. And righteousness is the moral character of God. It is how he behaves. That's what righteousness is. So that's the first big theme in Scripture. Righteousness is the character of God. The second big theme in Scripture is that righteousness is not the character of humanity. Because it says things like this. Here's a couple of verses. Romans 3 verse 10. There is no one righteous. Not even one. Romans 3 verse 5 makes this contrast between humanity and God. It says our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly. So there's a huge dichotomy between what God is like and what humanity is like. God is righteous and we're not. That's the second big theme of Scripture. The third big theme is this. Righteousness is intended to become the character of humanity. It isn't by nature. It's intended to become the character of humanity. So here's a couple of verses. Romans 1 verse 17. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith, meaning experientially, it is by faith from first to last as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So it's intended human beings can be righteous, whatever this means we'll see in a moment in practice. Now Romans 3.22 speaks of the righteousness from God, something given to us. Romans 8 verse 4 talks about how the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the spirit, uh, according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So those are the three big things about righteousness. It's true of God, it's not true of human beings, but it's intended to become true of human beings. Let me then break this down. First of all, let me give you a definition of righteousness. Righteousness is the moral character of God. And as such... Therefore, it constitutes the image in which human beings were created. Because in the beginning, you remember, in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The our there, of course, is the Trinity. In other words, let's create humanity 
in such a way, when you look at a man, you look at a woman, you see what God is like in our image. Now, theologians have debated, long debated, what exactly is the image of God? I think we can work it out by deduction. First of all, there are certain things that are true of God that are clearly not true of us. And those are what we may call his non-transferable attributes. That is, the things God has, he does not transfer to human beings. So God is all-powerful, for instance. He's omnipotent. He can do anything he wants. We're not that. God is omnipresent. He can be in all places at all times. We can't do that. He's omniscient. He knows everything there is to know. We don't know that, although I've met some people who think they do. I heard about an advert one day in a magazine. It said all 38, all 38 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica for sale. Reason for sale, husband knows everything. <laughs> But of course we don't. But God does. He's omniscient. He's immutable. He doesn't change. We do. He, his eternal nature means he has no beginning and no end. That is not true of us, of course. We, we have a beginning. And these are attributes that remain unique to God. They're non-transferable. And uh, they do not constitute his righteousness in themselves. But they're attributes that God has chosen to impart to, his, to humanity. They're what we may call his transferable attributes. And they have all to do with his moral character. So, for example, God is love. And we're intended to be loving. God is just. We're intended to be just. God is merciful. We're intended to be merciful. God is kind. That is to be true of us. And the word that encompasses all of that is God is righteous. That is his moral character. And he created human beings to be a visible, physical expression of his own moral character. And if you and I were a fly on the wall in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there before the fall, you have looked at Adam and Eve and we would have seen in them exactly what God is like. Adam would have been very loving towards Eve, he very kind towards Adam. They would have been very generous. The way they treated each other, the way they handled the animals in the garden, the way they patted the dog and stroked the cat and fed the guinea pigs and cleaned out the goldfish. <laughs> we would have seen what God was like. That's what it means to be in his image. You look at the image, you see what the origin is like. But you remember that God said to them in the Garden of Eden, you can do whatever you like in this garden, except one thing. Do not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he said this, the day you eat thereof, you will die. You eat, you die. And you remember, they ate, and what happened? Did they fall down dead? When God came in the cool of the day, did he find two corpses at the bottom of the tree? No, they lived for many years. But when he said the day you eat, that day you will die, it wasn't physical death they experienced that day, it was spiritual death. In the language of Paul in, Roman, in Ephesians 4 verse 18, 
they became separated from the life of God. They remained physically alive, socially able, but spiritually dead. And that's the condition in which all of us have been born. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. And you and I were born physically alive, but spiritually dead, and therefore ill-equipped to be what we were intended to be when God first created human beings. We can no longer show what God is like because it was his spirit indwelling us that would be the means of exhibiting God's character and showing what he is like. And as Paul said when he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God has made you alive. So he said your natural condition was that you were dead, separated from the life of God. And the whole point of the gospel now is to reinstate the life that you have lost, which is the life of God. But that is the condition in which we were in. And so as a consequence, separate from the life of God, we no longer can show what God is like. And so Romans 3 verse 10 says, there is no unrighteous, not even one. Meaning, there is nobody now who shows you what God is like in the way they live and behave. I was thinking this earlier, if you use your imagination, just supposing there's a planet some distance away in outer space, many light years away, and on this planet there is intelligent life. As intelligent as we are, but they have no knowledge of God. But they're smart enough to know that somebody must have created them. And just supposing that they become very sophisticated and they engage in space exploration and uh, so on. And in the course of time, they discover there is a star with, a, with, with eight planets orbiting it. And they discover that one of those planets has a creature on it that was created in the image of God. And they get very excited. We have no idea what God is like. But there is a creature on this planet called Earth in the solar system creating the image of God. If we could get to Earth and if we could look at human beings, we would see what God was like. We'd know what God is like. And so supposing they develop sophisticated means of space travel and they select their best astronauts and they send them off on a mission to Earth to find out what God is like by finding out what human beings are like who are made in his image. And supposing they're right, this last week, let's say. And they're eager to find out what God is like, and they turn on the television news. And they hear about the events in Israel and Gaza. The bloodletting the deaths that are taking place. They hear about the war in Ukraine where one nation over its own greed and self-interest is willing to crush and dominate and subjugate another nation. They hear that in 
our part of the world, 40% of marriages break up. They hear some of the crime statistics. And as they absorb all this information, their hearts begin to sink. And they say, this is terrible. God is so selfish. He is so greedy. He fights. He destroys. He lies. He breaks his promises. He's unfaithful. Is that true of God? No, of course not. But they get back into their spacecraft and they return to their planet somewhere in outer space. And when they get back, the whole planet is waiting for them. Every television camera is focused on their spacecraft as they land. Everybody wants to know, what is God like? You've been to the planet where there are people in the image of God. What is he like? And as they get off the spacecraft, they see their faces are glum. <laughs> and long and they come to the microphone and say we wish we'd never gone this God is horrible cheats, lies, kills, destroys you see the essence of sin is the way our lives portray lies about God untruths about God. When I do things that do not show what God is like, when you and I do things that do not show what God is like, we are blaspheming him having created us in, our own, in his own image. Because it's distorted. Now you say you picked the worst example. Worst examples, you talk about the events in Gaza, you talk about Ukraine and so on. Well, that's true, but if somebody came to you and said, um, what is God like? Would anybody here dare say to that person, well, if you want to know what God is like, I'll tell you what to do. Just follow me around for a week. See everything I do, listen to what I say. Read my mind if you can. At the end of that week, you'll know what God is like. Would you say that? Of course you wouldn't. What, what, what are you saying? You're saying I'm a sinner. I've come short of the glory of God. The glory of God is also the character of God. So there is no one righteous. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the restoration of the righteousness of God into human beings because if Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 17 for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith that is it's available experientially to people available by faith from first to last as is written the righteous will live by faith so so what is the nature of that righteousness and I'm going to give you two words that theologians tend to use about this. They talk about imputed righteousness, first of all, and then imparted righteousness. Let me explain that. Imputed righteousness. The word imputed means it doesn't naturally belong to us at all, but it is attributed to us. 
So in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, as sin is imputed to him, it doesn't belong to him naturally, but it's attributed to him. So Jesus Christ on the cross became sin for me. In order that, he says, that his righteousness might be imputed to me, and though it is not, does not naturally belong to me, it is attributed to me. He became sin, and I become righteous. It was Martin Luther who first used this term, I believe, that the great exchange that took place on the cross is an imputed righteousness, not an earned righteousness. That was his controversy with the Catholic Church, which is what triggered the Reformation. It's not earned. It's gifted. It's imputed. And this is the first important aspect about righteousness in the New Testament. That it's an identity that's given to us before God because my identity was given to Christ on the cross. When he became sin for me, that I might become his righteousness. You know, in 2006, I became a citizen of Canada along with my wife and our three children. We came to Canada in 2001. I came to be the pastor of the People's Church in Toronto. But I hadn't got permanent residency. And so we came to an arrangement with the government where I could have a temporary residency, which would be extended until we satisfied uh, the requirements to be a permanent resident and then a citizen. And there were delays in the process. I had some significant heart issues and uh, the government turned down the application and told us we had to go back to England because we cost too much for the health services here. So we didn't have any access to OHIP. We, we could go to the doctor, but we had to pay the bill. And uh, we had insurance to cover that, extra insurance we, we took out to cover that. But uh, after an appeal that was made by my cardiologist and by the gentleman who was the foreign minister in the government in Ottawa, I won't tell you the whole story, but he, on my behalf, asked the agency that had rejected my application to review it. And uh, when the government minister asked you to do it, they realize he obviously wants you to stay. <laughs> he doesn't ask for that. He just says, review it. And so they granted me residency. And my family and I immediately got Canadian citizenship. And we stood in front of a judge. And I swore allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. I'd never had to do that in England. But I had to do that in Canada. So we did that. And the judge shook our hands and declared us Canadian citizens. And I immediately got a Canadian passport. 
And I didn't feel any different the next day, but I was different. And the difference included this. When I went in to visit my doctor, I showed him my OHIP card. And I got all the treatment I needed. Because now I had a new standing. If I were to travel and get into some kind of trouble, I'll be in Germany next week, supposing I got kidnapped or something like that happened when I was in Germany, the Canadian government would intervene and act to get me back because I'm one of, I'm part of Canada now. I'm part of this nation. And so I still speak with an English accent, so I'm still messed up as far as Canadians are concerned. <laughs> I still don't have a Canadian history. <laughs> but I've had imputed to me Canadian citizenships all the rights of anybody born here. I have the same rights as anybody whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were born here. It's been imputed to me now. And uh, you see, imputed righteousness have, has nothing to do with anything that we do to earn it. It's gifted. And there are many believers who have doubts, am I, am, I really, am I really right with God, based on their own feeling, on their own thing, based on the fact they still have the old accent and that they still have the old inclination, they still sometimes have the old temptations and they haven't yet been able to learn to deal with those and they're still struggling in the same old ways. Maybe. But if you've come to the point of saying, Lord Jesus Christ, it is your death that was my death, thank you. I confess my sin to you. Thank you. You forgive me. And whatever I feel like is totally irrelevant. I'm declared righteous. That's my standing. And I know that people, like I had a chat yesterday with somebody who, doubting, am I really, really saved or not? Well, if you're not careful, you start looking at works then. Do I feel like I'm saved? Have I behaved enough to show I'm saved? Am, am, I, am I doing the right things? You're looking at works then. This has nothing to do with that. This is saying, I don't deserve it, but I'm going to say thank you, Jesus. You died for me. And we are declared righteous. It is an imputed righteousness. But on that basis... We then have what theologians also speak of as an imparted righteousness. Imputed is my standing, but imparted to me is a new life with new appetites, with new behavior. It was John Wesley who coined that phrase, I think. Where the character of the Lord Jesus begins to be imparted to us. You see, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He says we are being transformed into his likeness. By, by what means? Because I'm more disciplined than I used to be? Well, that's always good to be, of course, but that isn't the reason. He says... Uh, that I am being transformed into his likeness, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, the Spirit who indwells us now. He creates new appetites. 
new enabling. Romans 6 verse 13 says, Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Rather, offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That is, you now have a new life in you and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. So you say, Lord, I'm available to you now. You live in me. And because I have been reconciled to God and you live in me, I present my body to you, a bit like we talked about last night, as instruments that the life of Jesus Christ in me can express himself in what he calls as instruments of righteousness. The first is called justification, being made right with God. The second is called sanctification, which is the outworking of his presence within us. And one of the first indications that this is taking place is that there is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that's created within us. I became a Christian at the age of 12 on a Saturday night. It was a youth event in the city of Hereford in the west of England where I lived. I went to this event, and at the end of it, I knew I was not a Christian. They were showing a film. It was a, a film that featured Billy Graham. It was a story about somebody in Australia who got converted in the Billy Graham crusade in Australia. And uh, as the story progressed, I became aware of the fact that I wasn't a Christian, that I wanted to be one. And when the film had ended, a man got up to the front and said, if you're not a Christian tonight, you want to become one, come down to the front, there'll be people here to pray with you and lead you to Christ. And people went forward, but I didn't. I was too embarrassed to do anything public. But I prayed, I don't remember what I said, but basically it would have been, Lord, would you please make me a Christian tonight? I need to become a Christian. I want to become a Christian. I can't remember what I prayed, of course. I didn't feel anything. When I went home that night, if somebody said to me, did you become a Christian tonight? I wouldn't have known the answer. But the next day was Sunday, and I went to the little church in the village I grew up in that I'd been to all my life. My parents took me every week. And that Sunday morning, for the first time, the service was interesting. I went back on Sunday night, and for the first time, the preacher made sense. And I thought to myself, this is remarkable. These people have changed overnight. This used to be dull and boring, and the clock moved very slowly, but suddenly it's become interesting. And I discovered 24 hours after I became a Christian that I had become a Christian because I had an appetite I never had before. But I now know to be a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I had a bad track record in righteousness. I was only 12. I already had a police record. <laughs> and uh, I thought I needed to change my behavior. I wanted to. And I tried to. But I couldn't change something. We used to have youth meetings about once a month, and the preachers used to preach the same kind of message. They would say things like this. There's some of you here tonight, although you've been a Christian for a while, there's not much to show for it. And I'd think, uh-oh, that's me. You still commit the same old sins you used to commit? Yeah, that's true. And you made us some new ones? Yes. And you're a mess. And I sit there and say, yes, I'm a mess. 
And the preacher would say, do you want to be different tonight? And in my heart I say, I long to be different. Tonight I'm going to ask you to dedicate yourself to Christ, he'd say. So I would dedicate myself to Christ. i say, God, I'm sorry I failed you, but I promise you tonight I'll live for you. And it lasts about 24 hours. I'll go back to the next meeting. The preacher would say to some of you here tonight, Although you've been a Christian for a while, it's not Mr. Chauffeur. I think, oh, oh, that's me again. You still come at the same old sins. Yes, and some new ones. Yes, you're a mess. Yes, I'm a mess. Tonight, do you want to be different? Yes, I thought I longed to be different. Tonight, I'm going to ask you to rededicate yourself to Christ. So I rededicated myself. God, I'm sorry it didn't work last time and I failed you, but I, I really, really promise tonight I'll live for you. If it was a good meeting, it might last 36 hours. And I'd go back to the next meeting. The preacher would say, some of you here tonight, well, you've been a Christian for a while, it's not much to show for it. And I got dedicated and rededicated and re-rededicated and re-rededicated, my rededication. <laughs> One night, I got consecrated. It sounded deeper. I didn't know what it was. But I tried it. It didn't work. And I began to think maybe everybody's playing the same game. And then I discovered one day, the Bible never tells me to dedicate myself to Christ. It tells me to die to myself. What does that mean? To come with an empty hand, no promises, and say, Lord, I can't, but you can. I have been crucified with Christ. That old me is worthy only of crucifixion. It's been crucified in Jesus Christ. But I live in our lives. Christ lives in me. And I suddenly understand. I need the language about Christ in your heart. I didn't know it was a real thing. And that the Christian life was to be lived in dependence upon him, in fellowship with him, as Sim on Sunday mornings has been, I think we'll continue to look into John 15, a rich chapter where Jesus talks about being the vine and we being the branches and he says there, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If you recognize that abiding in me is not trying to do anything, it's just, it's just acknowledging him, saying, Lord, thank you. You live in me and I trust you. We are, of course, live disciplined lives, but discipline doesn't get godliness into our lives. It's so that the life within us, the life of the Lord Jesus, can be expressed through a body that obeys orders, which is why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I quoted that verse to you last night, and we talked about that verse a bit. So it is God who works in you he gives you the new appetites, the new desires, the new sense of uh, what is right. Now, we have to work out. So discipline is so that, uh, so that we learn to obey that life within us that is being expressed through us. You see, the New Testament talks about being free from the law. And by that, what, what that means is we're not living because we are compelled to by outward rules. It's a big mistake to read Paul's letters, for instance, as being like a new covenant 
Moses. Moses gave law that was external. What is taught about in the New Testament, in the teaching of Jesus and in the rest of the New Testament, is the outworking of this internal presence of the Spirit of God within us. So that Romans 8 verse 3 says, uh, what the law was powerless to do, it was weakened by the flesh, we, we couldn't do it, we couldn't respond to it, God did by sending his own son, the likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, who don't live simply on trying my best, but who live according to the Spirit, who realize what the law demanded, the Spirit in us actually agrees to because it's right. It's the righteousness of God. But it's a totally different mechanism. It's not because I have to do it. It's because something inside me wants to do it and longs to. That's why we have to free ourselves from the, the musts and the mustn'ts of the Christian life and the shoulds and the shouldn'ts and the oughts and the ought not tos. That's not how we live the Christian life. That's how you live a religious life. The Christian life is lived by the indwelling spirit working in us to will and to act according to his, his good pleasure. And that gives freedom. And this hunger and thirst for righteousness is what the Spirit of God places in us, and we begin to live in accordance with that new indwelling appetite and desires. When my wife became a Christian, she was the only Christian in her family. I came to Christ at university. And when she came home and told her parents she became a Christian, they were okay about that. They thought it's better than getting onto drugs. But when you're at university, you do all kinds of strange things. So becoming a Christian is, is fine, but you'll get over it. Well, she didn't get over it. It got worse. <laughs> and then she met me, and I was already a preacher. And that's, oh boy, well, what, this is getting serious now. She's marrying a preacher. <laughs> anyway, she was the only Christian. She had one sister. And uh, after we married, her sister stopped coming to visit us because she said, I don't like the atmosphere when I come there because we lived at a place called Cape Mary Hall, which is a Bible school, conference grounds. So when I come onto the Cape Mary property, there's something there that I don't like. And she was resisting it. God, you see. She got engaged and then married to a young man. And the only two times I ever talked to him about Christ, he was drunk both times. And he was willing to talk. But of course, it didn't have much effect. After a while, my sister-in-law had to have a hip replacement because of sporting accident she'd had and uh, they lived up some in an apartment up some steps and that was difficult for her so we lived in a bungalow and we had a, a, a room at the end of our house which had its own bathroom we said why don't you come and stay with us during the the rehabilitation time and they said well well thank you but my brother-in-law said We'll do this on one condition, that you never talk to us about God. 
So, okay, I'll tell you what we do do. When we eat, we like to say thank you. We think it's polite, so we pray. And uh, he said, okay, well, you can do that, but don't, don't just say thank you for the food. Don't preach or anything. He said, sure, I'll do that. So they came to stay at our home. They were there for several months. We had a youth event going on at Cape Mary Hall one Saturday afternoon, young people coming in, doing different things in the afternoon, then a meal, and then we'd have a meeting at night. And uh, he had his black belt in judo. I said to my brother-in-law, would you come and do a demonstration of judo for some of these kids? Some of the kids would love that. Put out a carpet, etc. And he said, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that, sure. So he came and did that and enjoyed it. And I said, why don't you stay for the meal? So he did. I didn't ask him to stay for the evening, but he decided he would to see what went on. He came and sat in the back of the conference hall, and the preacher that night started to talk about the cross of Christ, and he pulled out a nail about this long, twisted. He said, this is the kind of nail they hammered into the hands of Jesus and the feet of Jesus, and he said, it was you who put those nails in his hands and feet. You crucified him, he said. He had pulled out a crown of thorns, long thorns the size of my fingers. He said, it was, this is the kind of crown of thorns they pushed into his head. And he said, and it was you that pushed them into his head. And my brother-in-law got really angry. This is abuse. Telling these kids, you knocked those nails and you put that crown of thorns? This is abuse. And he went home angry. But he couldn't sleep that night. All he could think about was the nails and the thorns. We'd announced that the following night this speaker was going to be in the next town. If any young people want to go, he's going to be there. It's going to be a Sunday night, 8 o'clock, after church meeting, we called it. And my brother-in-law decided he would go on his own. Didn't tell anybody. Because he couldn't sleep. I wanted to hear more. <laughs> and he went on his own. That night he was converted. His life totally turned around. A week later, I was going to speak at a university on the, on the Saturday night down in the south of England. And I said, do you want to come with me? As we were driving down the freeway to the, to the university, he said to me, he was in a family business, and he said, you know, we did some work recently where we, we cheated, we, we charged for a certain quality of material that we're using, but we didn't use that quality, we used a lesser quality. He told me this. And then he said, I'm gonna to have to go and put that right, aren't I? I said, why'd you say that? He said, because it was wrong. He said, sounds it to me, yeah. Did you not think it was wrong when you did it? He said, no, we thought it was clever when we did it. So, so why is it wrong now? He said. I don't know, it's obvious, isn't it? I said, Simon, if I need any evidence that Jesus Christ has come to live in you, this is the evidence. What was clever a couple of months ago is now wrong. Who told you that? Nobody. The Spirit of God inside him. When I finished speaking that night at the university, I was talking to somebody when a student came up with another student who wanted to give his life to Christ. And I was busy talking with somebody. He saw Simon with me, and 
thought, well, he's come with me. <clears throat> so he went to him and said, this young man wants to give his life to Christ. Would you help him? He said, I've only been a Christian myself for a week. But he helped him. And his life turned around. He did put it right. cost a lot of money. He suddenly began to serve God in all kinds of ways that he used to think was stupid, ridiculous. Decided he would give up his job, go to Bible school. Came to Columbia Bible College in South Carolina. Became a pastor. pastor at least he founded a church down there. Started a church down there for doubting people. People like he had been. And then they had to leave America, so they came to Canada. And then he joined our staff as our pastor of evangelism for several years in Toronto, the People's Church. Then he went back into business. I'm telling you that because, you see, when the Holy Spirit came to live in him, nobody told him how to behave. <laughs> nobody said, now you're a Christian, you're going to have to live differently. No, God did that. He created a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. We must let God do that in people's lives. I remember one Sunday at the People's Church, in the service, I was chatting to people as I, I do, I'd stay around. And a young man came to me and he said, my girlfriend and I just got engaged and we're going to get married, but we can't get married for about two years. We're both students. Uh, our parents want us to wait, and also it would be, it's not easy, it'd be difficult for us to, to plan a wedding. But we will get married in two weeks. Do you think it's okay if we sleep together? Because we're totally committed. It's just we can't plan a wedding yet, but we are committed to each other. Do you think we, should, we could sleep together? I said, why are you asking me? He said, because you're the pastor. I thought maybe you might know. <laughs> I said, uh, it's a good question. Why don't you ask God about it? I said, um, you're a Christian, aren't you? He said, yes, I'm a Christian. I said, you know, you abide in Christ. You know that passage? Yeah. And it says, if you abide in Christ, you abide in his love, and you abide in his word. So I want to suggest you, don't ask me. I want you, as you abide in Christ, in his love and in his word, to ask him to show you what is the right thing to do. And then if you want to, come and tell me. You don't have to. What do you think he says to you? And off he went. I forgot about it because I was having those kind of conversations, not infrequently. And uh, after, I know, a month, six weeks, he was there again in the line on Sunday morning and I said, oh, how are you doing? He said, do you remember me? I told you, yes, I remember you. You, you. you got engaged. He said, yes. I said, we've, we've found a way now to get married sooner. <laughs> I said, really, why is that? He said, because uh, I did ask God about it. <laughs> and I knew that was not the right thing to do. So we're going to get married, not have a big event. We can't afford that. We're going to just get married. I said, how do you feel about it? He said, we feel great. This is good. This is the right thing. It's the spirit in them. And that's right. Jesus said, if, if you, he, rather Paul said, you know, if, if you uh, 
if you, what did he say about it? if you burn, it's better to marry than to burn. He, should, he didn't say just sleep with your fiance before you get married. Get married. And uh, he came across that verse. He went back to look. What does the Bible say anything about this? You see, it's the Holy Spirit who puts a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Now let me say this in closing. That righteousness is both imputed to us. That's done, sealed. I cannot undo my Canadian citizenship now. I can go back to live in England. I can backslide and go back to England. <laughs> but I'm a Canadian citizen for the rest of my life because it's been imputed to me. There's an imputed righteousness that is true for you, and you need to believe it and hold on to it no matter what you feel like. But then there's this imparted, this appetite, this hunger and thirst for righteousness that God puts within us. And with that appetite comes also the enabling. But let me finish by saying this, that hunger and thirst means you want it, but you haven't got it. When I get up in the morning, I'm hungry. I make some oatmeal, stick some stick a banana in it, and some yogurt, and some chopped up uh, nuts. That's what I have for breakfast. <laughs> and half an hour later, I'm not hungry anymore. What this tells us is this: we'll never get to a point where we say, hey, I, I'm really doing well. <laughs> because I know every day, though it is the product of the Spirit of God in us to work, and He does things that other people might see that we don't see, is conforming us increasingly into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ourselves are longing. We're hungry. We're thirsty for this. And blessed are those who are hungry hunger and thirst for righteousness it's not a completed work when we get to heaven the job will be done in this world, life it isn't but they will be satisfied they will be satisfied he says that NIV says they'll be filled and other translations say they'll be satisfied there'll be a sense of contentedness deep in our hearts Let me say this as I finish. What if you're not hungry and thirsting for righteousness? Well, go back a step and ask the question that my meek and my humbly submitting to Christ as my Lord. And if we're not meek, go back a step. Am I mourning my condition? My living in that spirit of repentance, turning from what I am to who he is. And if I'm not mourning that condition, go back a step. Am I aware of my poverty of spirit? Or do I still think I've got what it takes? And if we're not mourning our poverty of spirit, I'll tell you something about you. That you know you're not happy. Because these are the ingredients of true happiness. Tomorrow, we'll look at the next two, which continue to explain how this works out in our practical living. But let's pray together.
And uh, just in the moment of quiet prayer, I don't know how God may have spoken to you tonight. I don't know if he's put his finger on something in your own life. I don't know if he's asking you to deal with something. But that appetite for righteousness that comes from him will satisfy you as you follow it. There's something in the moment of silence you'd like to just talk to God about. Lord, I thank you for every person here tonight. Thank you for that appetite that brings us here on a Monday night in the first place because we do want to know you more fully, more deeply, more experientially. Thank you for those whose lives here demonstrate your presence in such a way that encourages others. But I pray, Lord, that we all together will grow in you and grow in godliness. That we will take every situation of our lives and relate it to you, present it to you, and thank you that you're present in us and you are sufficient to produce and to form the Lord Jesus in us. Our lives may in some way show your character, your fruit. Make this real for us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name.